This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash be here now today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash be here now. A new year is a new chance to focus on you. You're probably already picturing yourself struggling at the gym, but not all self-help has to mean suffering. Squeeze.com is making it easier than ever to elevate your wellness by delivering a juice cleanse right to your doorstep. It's the easiest juice cleanse you'll ever do that may aid in weight loss, eliminating bloating, clearing your skin, boosting your energy levels, improving sleep, and breaking bad eating habits. Meet all your health goals from the comfort of your home. Get free same-day local delivery or fast free delivery nationwide with code WONDERY today at squeezed.com. Welcome to the Rerooted Podcast with Francesca Maxime, trauma-sensitive mindfulness meditation teacher and poet. Together, we'll take a closer look at approaches to transforming trauma with insights from psychology, neuroscience, spirituality, social justice, and the creative arts. Join Francesca and her guests for an exploration of our shared connection and how we can cultivate greater compassion for ourselves and for others. If you'd like to support Francesca and the Rerooted Podcast, please visit BeHereNowNetwork.com forward slash Francesca. Hi, everybody. I'm Francesca Maxime, and welcome to this edition of Rerooted, where we really are inviting us all to discover our inner wisdom and root back into that which is natural and here, unearthing our own radiance and brilliance, and really discovering the roots that we share. As we know, trees talk to one another underground and alert one another to dangers in the soil, so to speak, and toxins and where there's nourishment. And we as people, um, ideally organically do the same and sometimes we are more in sync with one another and in alignment around that and sometimes we are not so much but i'm working today with um talking today rather with somebody who is um working on all of that all that kind of collaboration that connection that communication and it's um this wonderful teacher uh, of cultural somatics uh tada hazumi and I'm just going to read you his little intro, their little intro, excuse me, that's my own first bad, so I take a mea culpa on that, and we can get into that, and I want to. I'm a practitioner of a healing practice, this is Tada talking, that uh, they refer to as cultural somatics, or sometimes cultural somatic therapy. The simple premise of cultural somatics is that cultures are in fact bodies that emerge from networks of relationships. Within this model, oppression such as white supremacy and heterosexism are understood to be expressions of trauma in cultural somas, bodies. Following the work of cultural somatics is facilitating change by supporting the co-healing of individual and cultural bodies. 
cultural somatics is both a model for one-on-one and group facilitation work that addresses oppression such as white supremacy as trauma itself and social activism that is built upon the foundations of trauma-informed somatic healing such as relationship building, unconditional positive regard, and titration, working gently and slowly in processing emotional material to avoid re-traumatization. Ta-da, ta-da! Welcome. Thank you for joining me on Hello. Hi. Hi. Um, And I just want to claim my pronouns and say I'm a she, her, and I'm here in Brooklyn, New York, and I'm I'm on uh, currency uh, Lenape land and invite you to um, share your pronouns with us and maybe get into a little bit of a conversation as I try to move forward to incorporating more of this with um, really being more aware and culturally responsive and competent uh, into what uh, identifying ourselves with our proper affirming pronouns means. Yeah, um, my name is Tada. I, um, I, my pronunciation is like a little bit probably off. I'm in Teojake, uh, so-called Montreal. So that's a meeting place for um, many indigenous nations of, of, you know, live and work through here. I also, some of the time based in unceded coastal territories. So that's Vancouver, Victoria, BC, and all the other little islands around BC. So I'm also uh, go back and forth. And uh, yeah, I use, I think, I think I'd already said this, I use them and they pronouns, but he and him is not wrong. It's just more that um, those are my supermarket pronouns. And when I'm in, you know, justice spaces, I actively use them. They. So it's not necessarily that's wrong. It's just a perf- yeah, some, I wouldn't say preferred. It's just a different layer of my life. Yeah. yeah. Beautiful. And, 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 and if we can start there, because it's so rich already, because part of the um, point of really having these conversations, especially um, being graced with your presence, is that I know you can get into the messy conversations and hold the space. <laughs> okay, we'll see. <laughs> All right. Yeah. We, we'll do it together because that's what yeah. it's about. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, deepening understanding and try and maybe use our mutual learnings and understandings, or at least mine anyway, to... Um, to see if there's any way that um, some light can perhaps be shed um, in some of the darker, you know, corners of things. So this concept of um, really incorporating gender-affirming pronouns into a day-to-day and then having there be different layers, can you just touch on where people in general, especially like teachers or therapists or um, spiritual teachers, where could they, why is this important for them to kind of grok and get to know and be literate on and get educated about? <laughs> okay, I'm being a little bit put on the spot because, you know, I'm not like a, I'm definitely not like an expert. From your on, perspective. Okay, sure. I'm not, a, I'm not an expert from, on gender oppression or, no. you know, pronoun use or any of that stuff. And, um, you know, I'm, as a trans person, I'm pretty like, I pretty go pretty unscathed, if that makes sense, um, mm-hmm. through life. But uh, yeah, I think there's a certain amount of you know an embodied safety to you know it's a, it's definitely like now a really important cue within like a therapeutic space to say like this space affirms your existence and also it doesn't center a binary gender. So even if everybody's cis presenting even you know we never know because a lot of people think of that of me but um it, yeah it just opens like a kind of like you know it's always important 
to you know center something that's different center something that's not centered in like a therapeutic space actively i think that's kind of where we are um, you know a lot of times folks feel like pronouns are like kind of this cognitive thing to get around but um one way somebody's uh, i was in a workshop that uh, i was on a little island called cortez and somebody somebody his pronouns were it and you know they it came up with these pronouns on their own which is really interesting um, but you know it's a small little island and they wanted everybody to learn about why that's important so one of the ways that they described it which i think was really you know i was fond of is like instead of like thinking of it as this cognitive burden that you're going to get like this thunder is going to strike you if like you use the wrong one you know because that's why people perceive education right in our paradigms there's like like once you say something wrong there's a huge stick that's coming towards you or a thunderbolt and to think of it more like it's like the learning like realizing that there's like like way more genders than two and it's it's like you some you know people get to pick their own and sometimes people have genders that just are themselves like in a sense of like it's completely unique to them contained within them like for example for me like i consider my gender asian you know like it's part of i can't separate my racial cultural identity from my gender and and so like people have their own unique positions it's like kind of learning the name of flowers if that if that makes sense so it's about like learning the name of um you know beings that you're fascinated by as opposed to like this task and i think that's that's more and more i think of where like you know just in general like how um you know therapeutic spaces want to orient to you know diversity of all kinds including racial cultural identity or neurodivergence it's really yeah to see like to be fascinated by the world as opposed to um being punished for being wrong and that's usually what's happening when folks have issues with that kind of stuff yeah i love that emphasis from um whatever the punishment about being wrong and any sort of shame spiral that may be there too with that or something and this um alternative invitation which is fascination and which is um as uh, a dharma teacher that i really like a lot um on the west coast uh, gil fronsdahl um talks about he's like what about wow wow like awe like just about learning, about being curious, just about staying in that place. Like, isn't that really the root of mindfulness? Like what's here, what's here? And not making those assumptions, right? Like is an apple not an apple just cause we don't name it an apple? Like, is it yeah. still not something that we use, you know, it's fleshy and we put it in our mouths and we, it's juicy and we eat it. Mm -hmm. So of course it's still that. And every apple is different. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, there may be certain characteristics, right? But the gala apple is not the red delicious apple, is not the pink lady apple or whatever the heck it is. And yeah. so why do we have to make people be, you're either an apple or an orange? Right. Yeah. Well, and apples are really funny because they have a really weird way of grafting them on top of each other and creating species and stuff, I think mm -hmm. I remember, right? <laughs> so, yeah, particularly, yeah, apples. Um but yeah, absolutely. I think fascination is really important. I mean, of course, like, you know, so much of our learning process is baked in with the trauma response. It's, it's, it's easier said than done in reality, I think. Right. And, yeah, for sure. And, and, and so like just with there too, I mean, the trauma response, like so much of our learning process is baked in with the trauma response. And 
if you're a, you know, sort of Vipassana practitioner as I've been, or, you know, mindfulness practitioner, that, you know, the Buddha's whole point is wrong view and ignorance is suffering. Like there is suffering, you know, due to wrong view. And so we're trying to sort of see through the clouds, like remove the occlusions. And a lot of what occludes us somatically is our trauma. (laughs) So it's not who you really are, but it's what gets locked up and stored in the body based on whatever other kinds of um, stuff gets frozen or whatever inside and that the whole point is to you know let it flow like the river right to to just like get back into our natural balanced state of being so that we can respond appropriately and then for certain populations that's more difficult than others because it's just ongoing like whatever we survived is one thing and then there's just stuff sometimes it's just like okay this is like baked into the fabric of patriarchy which you know it's kind of what we live in now mm-hmm. so and I'm not sure where you want to start with that, if you want to start with the body or if you want to start with something else or anything that I said that maybe piqued your interest. Mm. Mm-hmm. I, th- I think maybe we can even start with like the conversation we're having before, you know, we turned on the record button of like, like, where are we now? Where are we now, um, you know, in terms of like, so there's been... Um, you know, specifically, actually, mindfulness, we're talking about a practice that really, I think, entered into the U.S., like, would it be, like, late 60s, early 70s, maybe even slightly before that, because I feel like D.T. Suzuki and Zen practice is introduced in the 50s or something. Um, but, like, you know, as we talked about, a lot of the, yeah, a lot of teaching modalities, you know, within Western psychotherapy, um, and healing modalities are really having to look at things like, you know, like one of the things we're talking about, the fact that we're talking about like how to do pronouns in therapeutic spaces shows you like, you know, where the curve is, right? Like where are, where we actually are. And yeah, yeah we're just, I think, you know, we're um, just starting to really review, um, you know, these practices that have been around now for about, I think 50 years and I, I think it's really important to talk about where yeah where where are we now and also like in the midst of that there's also the whole like you know like shambhalas and shambles you know if we want to talk about buddhism and, and mindfulness like one of the places you know where um like one of the resources for you know white americans that have been around is like kind of imploded and that's kind of like where, where we live in, you know. Uh, so I think it's like a really um, interesting place to start to talk about. And maybe like, you know, it's like a, it's like kind of like a gunky place, which is kind of why I like it. But yeah, it's a messy conversation. I mean, you know, <laughs> so like messy. we were talking about Lama Rod Owens and, you know, their, their book, uh, you know, Reverend Angel Kyoto Williams and um, Jasmine Sidula and their uh, book Radical Dharma. And, you know, it's about having messy conversations, right? Like you can't, you can't cook the meal without making the pot dirty, you know? No. <laughs> yeah, and, and I'd say, like, it's even messy sensations, right? It's not even just the, the cognitive, like, spoken layer. It's, you know, messy sensations that we're dealing with. Yeah, so talk about that, if you don't mind. Like, what is a messy sensation in the body, and how do we deal with that? Because a lot of times, you know, if we're doing meditation practices, like, um, you know, Goenka and the 
style mm-hmm. of Uban Can and all of that. They'll talk about body scans and, you know, MBSR kind of came out of that, I think, a little mm-hmm. bit. And, you know, like just the idea of what it is to be in the body, but it's about, as Dan Siegel talks about, you know, sort of the window of tolerance and, mm-hmm. and are we able to be with more of what's here? even if it's uncomfortable or it's not as pleasant of a sensation. And when is that okay? And when is that not okay when we're talking about trauma in our bodies that we're living with? Yeah, I mean, specifically, I think we can talk maybe about that, like, um, you know, in a historic sense, you know, I'm glad you mentioned the window of tolerance and messy sensation. So I think one of the things that's been real is that, like, Messy, like there's been a very narrow range within messiness was tolerated up till now within like therapeutic spaces. That's the reality that we're starting to see is that like, for example, um, stuff about family issues, like how we, our relationships to our family and stuff like that was within that messy, narrow, like kind of actually narrow space. Because actually when you look at it, like, you know, folks like people of color, trans folks, like, that window of what they're going through is a lot wider. Like there's a lot more stuff happening. Right. And there's something about, there's been like a, uh, the way I look at it, there's been like a time period of like cultural foundation building that's been going on for the last 50 years or so, especially in like white cis America. Um, and I include, you know, Canada inside of that, you know, like white cis North America, essentially. It's like, is building the window of tolerance to actually able to talk about these issues now in, in essentially 2020. And um, yeah, so I think that's really interesting. A lot of, you know, even when we're talking about the messiness of life, a lot of the times things like racism and transphobia weren't included in that messiness for a very long time in, in healing spaces. So, you know, but I, I think what's interesting now is what you're seeing is that like the, the last, I guess, 60 years, oh no, 50 years, yeah, last 50 to 60 years of that foundation building and, and through like this, you know, psychotherapeutic practices and healing practices, there's, you know, there's accountability now being asked for for that work. And, you know, I think there's a real responsibility to apply, like, you know, talking about the window of tolerance and, and rather than just talking about a window of tolerance as like an individual path and journey, because, you know, that's part of the, the healing journey, right? It's like opening up your, you know, you you continue to titrate and regulate within the window of tolerance, and you're also doing the work to expand the window of tolerance by healing trauma. What we're seeing now is that, um, you know, maybe before that journey was considered an individual's journey, that they take out kind of like, not like at their own leisure, but there's leisure is a weird way to put it, but like, has individual responsibility to self, which I think is still true. And, but what's being revealed now is that like, that is not an individual journey. That's actually a collective accountability problem. So, because when we, you know, um, when we have trauma in our body, we, you know, like we all access privilege and power in some shape, right? So when we go out of our window of tolerance, so we're in now we accessing like a child like trauma state like we're accessing a state of helplessness that's childlike and we're having a trauma response from that place but we have uh adult power 
combined with privilege and position. So you have, uh, you know, you have, um, yeah, the influence of being male, influence of being white, you were able-bodied, various like social power and that is combining with these child like helpless responses. But up till now, we've been kind of like not necessarily looking at that layer. What actually happens when a person's in that trauma state and how do they access things like white privilege? That's something we haven't really talked about. And so that changes the conversation about healing and, and even talking about the window of tolerance, building that. It's not just like an individual journey that you make time for. If you have, it's kind of like, it's kind of, it's not like this optional thing in life so much as like an actual responsibility to uh, the community that you're in. Yeah. I'm, I'm just going to repeat. Thank you. That's beautiful. Um, just going to repeat something that you said and reflect it back to make sure that I got it right. When someone is in a trauma state, how are they accessing white privilege when they're in a position of a healing spaces, perhaps even a leader? Yeah. Or not even just a leader, just in everyday life. Mm-hmm. I mean like the simplest example, you know, it's, it's like, um, like a simple example, I think, you know, you said you talked to Resma, I feel like I'm sure you talked about this, is, is when like a police officer shoots an unarmed young black man. Like the, you know, I think something we have to recognize is a police officer is in a help, helpless state internally. You know, we, they're, they're in an adult body, um, they have adult guns, they like, you know, very often have adult white privilege, um, they might be male, like all this stuff's adding on top. But the place where they're responding to the world from is a childlike state inside, right? And so this is something that, you know, so when you look at that, yeah, there's actually no, like when you get, there's a culpable responsibility to actually healing. That's not actually, a, it's not an individual responsibility only. It's actually a co- collective community held responsibility, has some accountability baked into it. And that's something that we haven't really talked about in psychotherapeutic spaces. And, and, you know, you know, definitely, you know, for sure. And like white, white, you know, dominated, which is most of them, like therapeutic spaces that, yeah, that, that it isn't framed that way. You know, that, that's for sure. Like it's healing is, I think often seen as an option. <laughs> Whereas if you're the person receiving the violence from people not being healed, that's not really an option anymore. And right. I think that, yeah. But, and it was never an option. I think that's the point. It was never an option. It was being perceived as one. But I think, I think it just like took a lot of time for us to reach a place and say, like, wait a second. You know? And that isn't to say that, like, again, like, that we need to go back in time and self-flagellate ourselves for... You know, like it's, I think there's a certain reason of like, we couldn't get here without that experience. It's been frustrating, but you know, like that's been the reality, you know, and we can't discount how big this stuff has been, you know. But when I say accountability, I think there's an important thing. Like I'm getting kind of hot. I noticed the temperature, mm-hmm. but like, you know, for example, like, um, I mean, talk about, um, uh, you know, broadly like the me too movement right what you don't really talk hear about what you what you don't actually listen like you, you don't you're not actually up to picking up in those in that conversation about me too it's like like for example how much mindfulness and somatic work is behind that as a as a as a foundation mm-hmm. probably a ton it took like 50 years of that 
resource around accessing the body's sensations and feeling safe enough for that to happen. Mm. That's probably not something that a lot of people discuss, right? Um, but, you know, like, say, you know, you can say the same for a lot of movements, but I wanted to bring that one in particular because it's a really intersectional thing that's interesting. So that's, there's a foundation of And that's that a good work. thing. Yeah, yeah, no, that's an amazing thing. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, it's just to notice, like, a public phenomenon underneath that Mm-hmm. There's a certain amount of somatic safety people needed to be able to voice their experiences that way, right? Absolutely, right. And and that's still ongoing. People are still learning about how trauma behaves in the body. I don't I don't think we're nearly at like a good state in terms of like public understanding around trauma and how it works. But you know that you know it's yeah, I would agree. I mean, the learning curve is is steep, but I think once you get it, I think, um, you know, I was listening to Stephen Porges do um, a live call and I asked him a couple of questions last night. Um, he is the author of poly- researcher in polyvagal theory, as you know, um, yeah. which is nervous system regulation for the listeners who may or may not know. There's another podcast that I had done with him where he um, talks a lot about this kind of stuff. And his point was, was when you're meeting someone, as you say, in the child state, in the trauma state or whatever it is, when you're meeting them, what you're meeting is a physiology that's stuck in a place that can't move beyond that place, right? And um, it can be, you know, the fight, fight, freeze, you know, it can be the submit, attach, it can be the various ways in which we show up, which could be, you know, self-shaming or down, depressed, internally, you know, sunken, it could be out there harming people physically or yelling at people physically. It could be manifested behaviorally in a variety of ways. But his point was, if we can shift it to understand, to less about the behavior, the attitude or the personality or how they feel about me, which is the whole point of mindfulness is non-identification. You're not taking it personally. When we get it into a physiological state, this is their physiology and their adult body responding from this trauma place. It kind of like deflates the balloon a little. Mm-hmm. And opens, I think, the door to a little bit of compassion, curiosity. Not if you're the person who's the black man in the driver's seat of the car that was pulled over, who now has a gun being pulled on him by a white officer in that mm-hmm. position. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like yeah. that is just a you're under threat, right? No yeah. holes, no no holds barred about that. Mm-hmm. But I think that that's really important because to understand that in psychoeducation is also another one of the invitations. We can have cultural responsiveness and cultural competency, and we can have an understanding about those pieces, like you said, cognitively or more left brain, and somatically we can have the embodiment, but also the psychoeducation piece around like, what's really going on with the body and the nervous system? Yeah. I mean, I think Resma is somebody, you know, you've mentioned again, some, you know, Resma Menachem is like somebody who's doing a lot of that psychoeducation, really talking about, like, I think doing workshops for police officers about trauma. So they're like, they understand, like, you know, I think Resma in his book, if I'm not wrong, um, yeah, writes about like the vicarious trauma, secondary trauma that police bodies go through from witnessing violence every day and like how real that is and important for them to understand that and, you know, um, you know, approaching that. And, I think where I was going to, you know, with all that being done and said, I think the interesting part for like, um, you know, just generally the psychotherapeutic community to be accountable for is like, let's say we talk about Me Too, right? And we talked about how like mindfulness has been providing kind of like, and also like, um, you know, other practices like Afro-diasporic dance, like, 
like almost like all, if you actually look at all white Western modalities or Western modalities, so-called, there's almost always cultures of color being resourced for them. That's from everything somatic experiencing to Hakomi method to continuum. Say to, it again. They'd have a what? They're resourcing cultures of color. All of them. They're resourcing cultures of color. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, all, all of them. Like absolutely. there's not, I don't, I can't think of one or like, you know, also there's like, obviously there's European animist and indigenous practices as well. But largely, I'm, yes. Yeah, it's like 95, 96%. You know, totally. like, you, you know, like, um, they're not, it's not a discovering of anything new, right? It's no. that, <laughs> and, and unfortunately, um, there's a lot of um, integration without attribution and, you know, of, of where these practices have, you know, either come from or, you know, how they were originated. And then they're just sort of being appropriated, which is also, um, good that they're being shared really challenging that they're not being honored in their origin yeah and i think that's like what you know when i'm talking about accountability you know saying like that me too has benefited you know um first you know me too being you know like uh like something that's originating out of black women's you know uh, movements and then also being taken on wide widely you know across racial cultural boundaries and, and white women really benefiting from it let's be let's be real about it there's a really palpable accountability that shows up because a lot of the tools that gives people the ability to speak out, like for example, around gender oppression comes from cultures of color. Like the root thing there is, you know, you start to see is that like how, how pervasive like white supremacy is in terms of a culture that splits the mind and body and how much resourcing has been done of, you know, you know, of our ancestors, you know, you and I even like of our cultures have been resourced for, um, I, I read that you're Dominican Haitian, you know, I know that continuum, I think resources Haitian dance, like that's like a founding, you know, I'm Japanese and like Feldenkrais to Hakomi to like, almost like, uh, yeah, it's hard to think of a somatic practice that doesn't integrate like Japanese somatics and martial arts and meditation practices, right? So. This has been going on for a long time, and I think there's, you know, it's kind of like the receipts are piling up because the, you know, like you're starting to see the collective benefit of of those practices that have been being stewarded in in like a large way out, you know, out there, and also the receipts are piling up of like, okay, there's something to be talked about and accountable for, and so the institutions are having to. <laughs> I don't know, maybe this is a bit of a punk conversation, but like, you know, there's, there's a palpable like accountability. That's, Listen, that's it's, it's an appropriate conversation. I mean, I was having a conversation with my mindfulness um, mentor um, a couple years ago about saying, you know, what is it going to take to have um, large retreat spaces become more culturally responsive and competent um, in an embodied way as an organization, as opposed to, um, for example, inviting a um, mindfulness, you know, person of color or, you know, LGBTQ, you know, teacher or try to invite that demographic to a retreat. What does it mean to actually have the board of directors, to have the, you know, people at the head of the organization, to have all of the staff sort of do the kind of trainings that are available now, whether it's a white awake training, whether it's um, Patty Dye's, you know, racism class, whether it's um, some of the LGBTQ, you know, diaspora awareness or, um, you know, ableism 
you know, education awareness. Like, those are the kinds of things that I think that if the time were taken to actually move through some of that education and also some of the classes that I know I've taken um, on both ends of the spectrum, right? Because I'm mixed. You mentioned the Haitian Dominican side. Mm-hmm. On the Italian side, although that was very much a marginalized community at the turn of the century here in the United States slash Turtle Island slash, you know, um, America, um, that that has become Eurocentric dominant culture now pretty much, right? So for a long time, I moved around in white spaces um, unchecked as um, a completely unaware, ignorant person of the totality of my uh, intersectionality. I was aware of it, but not in an embodied way. Yeah. And and that by being able to take some of these other classes, by being able to access white spaces, mm-hmm. as well as spaces for people of color or for women or, you know, mm-hmm. it really brought to the fore to me why this conversation is is needed. Um, and And how, unless you kind of go through that work, you don't really get it and you can get stuck in a shame spiral of like, oh, I didn't know. Oh, I feel bad. Oh, now what I, you know, what can I do or something like that? And that that really doesn't move the needle forward in the way that um, naturally, like you say, with these bigger movements, it is moving forward. Um, Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think one of the, one of the, when we talk about like spaces and how they're, you know, articulate um, competency and stuff, it, it's it's a lot of it's done in the frame of accessibility, right? Like access to an inclusion, right? And and I think that's like kind of like maybe like the trapdoor, um, you know? It, it's kind of like the you know like fawning, you know like a, it's like a fawning response to the threat. Like there's a threat of like oh shit, we're gonna get called out for being racist. Let's include people or let's make it accessible. And that's actually I don't think really. Um, Accessibility matters, but it's actually like a tip of the iceberg. It's a very small exactly. Yeah. Like what really needs to be done? I don't, okay, so, you know, at least when I do client work and I can feel my body temperature also rising again, it's like. Um, and when you say that, I love the yeah. way that you're describing it. I can feel my body temperature rising again. And some people might immediately jump to the story about that, right? And so in mindfulness, we're separating the sensation <laughs> from the actual way in which we feel about the sensation to the story that we tell ourselves about the sensation. And yeah. you're just naming it as pure sensation that the body temperature is rising right now, which is what's happening for you. Yeah. I think, I mean, I think, yeah. yeah. I, I think I'm just like excusing myself if I, if I blabber. <laughs> no, no. But what I'm saying is, is that like someone might say like, oh, this is getting uncomfortable or gee, I don't really want oh, right. to still hang in here. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Like, do you see what I'm saying? Like, or, or, you know, we're talking about the, you know, circling back to the window of tolerance that you're just naming the pure sensation. And that's, yeah. that's part of the work is all I'm trying to say. But anyway, oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But it's so um, ingrained in you. You're not even like... <laughs> oh, right, 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 right. I mean, yeah, for me, it's just like, you know, if I, it's like checking myself as well, you know? Like, right. Love and, it. Yeah, so, you know, it's, it's like a hot topic because it's actually not so much that white people need to delete themselves out of spaces, stop teaching, or even include people of color. See, this is like actually like all smoke and mirrors. Uh, anything done from a trauma response... Um, you know, uh, or what I would call like a insecure cultural attachment doesn't turn out to be that great of a solution. I love that insecure cultural attachment. That's amazing. Yeah. So what I mean by that is like, you know, um, 
that gets that gets into a bit of conversation. I'm going to sort out some of this stuff. Is but yeah, accessibility and inclusion is not actually like when you think about okay. So when you think about insecure attachment in a relationship, right? Like typically, you're like, oh, like um, you potentially did something that hurt somebody, and now you need to anxiously hold them close and like, did we do it? Did I? Did I? Oh, I'm sorry. Like, can I? Like, uh, like I do this all the time. So it's not like I'm trying to, you know. Or you that, believe that you did something to hurt someone, even if you sure. didn't, right? But sure, you have sure, yeah. some, yeah. Your response is that kind of like grabbiness, or we would call it craving. And yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. It's like it could be a little tick, and it, maybe you think you is a catastrophe, right? A lot of situations happen from something like very small like that, and so like when we're being anxious, we're also probably ambivalent. Right, so a lot of when I say cultural insecure, insecure cultural attachment is like, as let's say, as a white person, or to you know, in reference to a black person, or me in reference to indigenous person, we can have these responses that are really like, um, essentially, like reflects our insecurity and our cultural attachment to our own cultures, and not or to the land. So not feeling actually. Um, not feeling deserving of being here in this space on Turtle Island can show up as this kind of grabbiness and needing the other person to soothe our insecurity of actually being here. And that's a lot of what like inclusion accessibility in white spaces ends up being is like, oh shit, like we did something wrong. And now all the, the body's flooded with, but not still dissociative, but not understanding, but like flooded with these sensations of like, realizing, you know, because everybody knows, this is the thing the body knows. The body knows that white supremacy is fucked up when we've been living in it for like hundreds of years. The body knows that. It's the rest of us that's dissociated from that reality, right? And not to say dissociation is like a bad thing, but again, when we're talking about dissociation and white supremacy, there's an accountability to not be dissociative, frankly, over time. Right, like I understand it's a coping mechanism, but we're talking about- Right, it's adaptive to a point, and then when you're aware of some of it, then you got to move through working yeah. it out yeah and this is the thing that's the this is the thing what messes up up about like talking about these things in 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 a relationship to things like social justice is that there's a lot more accountability associated with healing than we think but anyways um yeah like when what white organization gets that memo that they've screwed up and they go into panic mode what they don't account for is like how much of that um is actually insecure cultural attachment behavior and so, and that comes from like feeling like I actually don't feel like I belong here. And that actually shows up in the body somatically. And that's something that people don't really register is that like the idea that we don't belong here, we don't deserve, there's violence happening. Violence allows us to exist, creates insecure cultural attachment between us and the land. This is something a lot of indigenous folks, you know, like um, who do um, indigenous social work and stuff understand. So, like a cultural attachment is a language that um, a woman named Estelle Samard, who kind of like talked about cultural attachment theory, kind of came up with. Um, I use it in a kind of different sense. I kind of independently started, you know, using the word, but then, you know, I recognized her um, research, but, you know, because mm-hmm. I come from a somatic psychotherapeutic background as opposed to like, uh, like a community social work background, um, mm-hmm. as far as I understand. But, yeah, like that's what floods. And so doing this inclusion and diversity stuff in that place of insecure cultural attachment is just as good as like, you know, craving and grabbing onto your partner in a relationship when you think, you know, you spill milk on them. 
-hmm. Like it's about as good. It's going to work out in just the same way. Yeah. I love that. (laughs) Basically that's what it comes down to. Yeah. Well, I mean, and that's, and that's such a beautiful thing. And this could be said in academia, this could be said in corporations, this could be said, I mean, this isn't, but I feel like the onus is, especially in these healing or more healing oriented spaces um, to be um, sort of, you know, even more um, on game about this, you know? Um, yeah, absolutely. That's where we do the role modeling, 100%. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's so funny because, you know, what you're naming something that I've kind of, you know, mulled over, like if I was holding a marble, it would be sort of like, you know, rolling in between my fingers. You know, I've mulled over this um, sort of thing <laughs> yeah. um, for a long time around to what degree is precisely what you're talking about dissociation trauma response you know child reactivity in an adult body in um you know white supremacist culture to what degree is that um sort of just fodder for like and this is just a mulling over like i said it's the marble in my fingers um it's not some set thing you know is that the neuroses? Is that the anxiety? Is that the, you know, where all the pharma companies come in? And, you know, like, yeah. and, and, and so I always ask the question, like, well, who does this benefit? Where, where, you know, there's, we know that there's like overt benefit for, for some folks, but where right. does it also benefit in other ways? And I don't mean benefit like for the greater good. I just mean who's, you know, getting the short term you know, gain or hit and our planet is suffering and our bodies are suffering and our communities are suffering. And how do we shift then out of that? I mean, it's just, it's a marble in my fingers. It's not, I'm not saying this is the big theory of the world. So yeah. And and cultural somatics, um, at least as I understand it, because Resma also uses the term cultural somatics. They've, they've been using it actually for longer than I, and, you know, we have very adjacent practices, but I think there's some differences in our work, so I'm not going to speak for him. But I mean, how I hold cultural semantics, right? Um, cultures are bodies, right? So big groups of people, you know, Turtle Island people, voting white middle American men are a body. Like every group of people has a body um, that's made up of, of a network of relationships. So, you know, everybody has a nervous system. So this, this, this is going to get somewhere. So like, you know, let's say like on the internet, when you share like a, a viral post, you know, we are going through an internal experience of like, Oh yeah, this is great information. And then the internet itself is also experiencing that neurologically. So that's kind of like one of the easiest ways to visualize that there's a cultural body and a cultural nervous system. Right. And so what this goes towards is that, you know, I feel like the question you're asking is what a lot of us ask, especially when you uh, take on activist work and realize, you know, social justice is a thing that's important. Who knew? Um, <clears throat> it's like we search for the boogeyman. We're on search for like the, like the, the what, who is the person benefiting from all this? Right. But the thing is, yes, there, we can construct it that way. Right. We can talk about, you know, the 1%, we can talk about the 1% being white, cis, male, and straight, you know, mostly, like 90% of them. We can talk about that. But that is, that is truth. That is absolutely truth. But, you know, just kind of like in quantum physics, like when you go to a deeper, subtle layer of truth, the world shifts. You know, like how like um, 
So you have like Newtonian physics where apple falls to the ground. You're like, this is gravity, right? And then like you go to quantum physics where the apple never existed here. And it's actually, there's no, you know, everything is in everything. And the apple never fell because it was always there. And, you know, mm -hmm. it was just like, like quantum physics is bananas. Like, you're, like nothing works this way you thought it was. Mm -hmm. That's kind of how I describe cultural semiotics. So we think, you know, we have their Newtonian mind that's, you know, that's important. That's the layer of reality we have to live in. Like, we can't live as if Newtonian physics doesn't exist and apples don't fall from trees. But we also can't ignore that quantum physics is real and, like, nothing works the way we think it does either. And right. And, and from the perspective of, you know, the teachings that I've studied, it would be the non-dual teachings as opposed to the, you know, thing that, you know, my mentor always says, like, don't forget your social security number. Like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. careful when you're crossing the street. Don't let the bus yeah. hit you. Yeah. So, so the finding the boogeyman is kind of like that Newtonian it's like it's almost like looking for a quantum answer in the Newtonian world, because in the Newtonian world, there's the one percent and the white cis straight males that are getting all the benefit. They have all the power, and that's that's just how it works. And it's like really easy to see. We got to dismantle that system. They're the opposition. We got to fight there, and we think. But th there's a problem there. There's a problem there because um, the deep, subtle shifts that happen in the world don't happen on the Newtonian layer. This is something that is really tricky for us to understand. This is a big part of like Japanese somatics, um, like, you know, that practices like Aiko and stuff, like are really rooted in this kind of understanding of the world, that the physical Newtonian layer that we see is not the most powerful layer that we're living in. It's actually the quantum type, yeah. you know, like blah, 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 blah space that we're in. Right. So what does that mean? That means that like, um, there's no boogeyman. I think that's a simple answer. Or there is a boogeyman, but it's actually just trauma itself within cultural bodies. Because when we usually see is like, you know, we're looking for the boogeyman in a Newtonian world and looking for um, that 1% and locating them. And, you know, there's all kinds of ways we want to destroy them is by taxing them to smash their buildings and all that stuff, which is fine, which is great. But what we start to see in a quantum sense, there is no such thing as a clear identity of self. You know, in, a, in the cultural somatics, there's inherently the self is queer. The distance between you and another person is filled with all this information. So there's information experiences that are more you and less you. Some things are really, really me and really close. And other things a little bit further in, a, in the community space. And then other things are really not me. But it still exists on a continuum as opposed to like a harsh, like, self other binary right well, yeah, so what is it's it process it's not fixity yeah yeah this is like a really fundamental buddhist concept of, right of um causality even, and karma right so what happens there what happens there is that like you the the other doesn't exist as much as you think they do in this non-relational way it means that like so in cultural semantics, you look at that as like the boogeyman is in the entire system now. It's, it's everywhere. It's infused everywhere. And it's not so much oppositional. It's more that, let's say, like when a body is um, unwell, as many of us bodies are, and that's okay, but when not balanced, it experiences pain. And that pain becomes localized somewhere, right? So... You know, in, in cultural semantics, we talk about, like, oppression as trauma. Not the cause of trauma, just, but as trauma. And what I mean is that, like, 
So when violence shows up in the body, that's like a body experiencing pain locally. So when violence in the community happens, it's like, for me, that would be experienced like having tense shoulder pain. And like thinking about that on like a Newtonian level is just like trying to like feed painkillers and da da da. When you actually bury deep inside, you actually see that's probably maybe related to a gastrointestinal issue that's related to a trauma issue that and related to ancestral trauma issue that's related to a social issue. And it's like widely spread out. Yeah. So the same thing happens with cultural bodies is that like, you know, a lot of the time people who are marginalized experience the pain of the cultural body. That doesn't mean that the whole body itself isn't in imbalance. So when we're trying to look at who is, who is benefiting, you know, it's one of those, like, there's really, in a sense, when you look at it as a totality, there's nobody that is actually, there is no, like, one individual that is, like, sitting behind a lever trying to benefit from this. We have a whole system that is a whole body that's on a full, whole body trauma response. And what happens is that certain um, people are dissociated into privilege. That's kind of how I describe it. So, you know, so folks who are like the 1%, um, you know, white, cis, straight men, you know, middle-class men are essentially dissociated from the reality of the world. That doesn't mean that their bodies don't know that. Those are two different things, but they're dissociated into a state that racism doesn't matter. Transphobia doesn't matter. All these things don't exist. Like they're living in a state of dissociation and privilege is actually a form of dissociation that's baked into our culture. It's not a, it's not a, it's not see, the, the, the way you usually think about privilege is that it's about an advantage and it's about gains. Right. And that's like the kind of Newtonian mechanism of it. But the more quantum thing that's happening underneath is that privilege is actually a trauma response, a dissociative trauma response happening in a wide way. And there's no boogie, man, because the entire cultural system is a trauma, but it's trauma itself when you actually look at like, where is, where is the evil being? Right. It's actually just trauma itself. There's no, and then there's no, there's like, there's no, um, when that happens, there's no like, there's no one person pulling the lever, pulling the strings behind it. There is no one. Everybody's possessed in a way. We're essentially all possessed by the matrix. We'll continue this conversation with Tada next time on Rebooted. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash BeHereNow today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash BeHereNow.